0: Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfeld, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello everyone, and uh, welcome back to another exciting Parsha podcast. I'm delighted to be discussing Parshat Itro with my colleague and friend, Tovalea Nachmani. Welcome, Tovalea. Welcome, see. To you. So you're listening to this a few weeks after we record it. Right now, unfortunately, we are still going through a very challenging time here in Israel, and I'm sure that will inform the way we talk about the issues that come up. It's an authentic Torah. We can't disassociate from it. But of course, it's our fervent hope and prayer that by the time you're listening to this, things will be much better. The hostages will be returned. There'll be peace in the land of Israel. That's our hope and prayer. I know it is yours as well. Right now, we're still hoping. So, Tovaleya, Parshat Itro. Normally, when people come to this Parshah, they're all excited to talk about the revelation at Sinai and the Ten Commandments. But you have noticed that that's a our parsha isn't been named after that, interestingly enough, and that's not how our parsha begins, which raises all sorts of questions. Why is the Torah interested? Before it wants to tell us about the revelation at Sinai and the Ten Commandments and the receiving of the Torah, why does it want to tell us about Moshe's father in law schlepping his wife and kids out in the desert to meet him?
1: Great question, and that's exactly where we want to begin. This Torah portion not only doesn't begin with the Ten Commandments, but it's also not named after the Ten Commandments. It's named Yitro, and Yitro, in addition to being Moshe's father-in-law, esteemed father-in-law, he's an outsider. He's an outsider to the Jewish people. He is a Midianite. He's a Kohen. He's not one of our Kohen. He's a spiritual non-Jew. Our tradition says there was not a single spiritual practice and not a single God who Yitro didn't worship, meaning he was a seeker. He was somebody who wanted to try out every single spiritual practice there was. And the question is, really, what is it that we can learn from Yitro? And what does the Torah have to say about outsiders?
0: Yeah, especially because in that parsha Yitro ends up giving excellent advice to Moshe and figuring out the legal system. But as you pointed out, he doesn't come from the experience of Egypt. He doesn't come from the experience of living those miracles of the 10 plagues and the splitting of the Red Sea. He hears about them, we're told. But he doesn't see them. And yet here he appears, like you said, he's an outsider to the story. He's an outsider to the people. His only link is the fact that that's where Moshe ended up for a while before he became Moshe, and he's the father of Moshe's wife.
1: That's right. So the three things that happen in the story first of all, that Eto brings Moshe's wife and sons back to meet him. And we would think the Parsha starts out as a very sweet family reunion. And while there is a reunion, there's no Conversation between Moshe and his wife, Moshe and his children. Immediately, we have a conversation between Moshe and Yitro. Yeah, there
0: is a missing hug there. You would like, he he says he greets Yitro, and you're thinking, wait a (laughs) minute, don't you want to greet Sipora? Don't you want to greet your two sons? But that may shed light on a different nature of Moshe's relationship with his family, which we won't go into now. But he clearly values Yitro. He shows him a lot of respect. He gets all the elders to show Yitro respect. Yitro is apparently either vis-a-vis being Moshe's father-in-law, or perhaps like you're saying, he is known and revered as this spiritually wise person. But either way, he enters the story with a lot of honor and dignity and position.
1: Right. In the Torah, it says that as soon as they appear... And Moshe hears that his father-in-law and his wife and children have come. It says, Moshe, likrat chotno. Moshe goes out toward his father-in-law, not toward his family, but toward his father-in-law. V'ishtachu, they bow down to each other, or he bows down, or they bow down. And kisses him, meaning there's an embrace there and a kiss. Vishalu Each one asks the other one, how are you? Right? Leshalom, how are you doing? And then they come into the very intimate place, into Moshe's tent. And the first thing that Moshe does is he tells Itro everything that God did to Pharaoh and to Egypt and all about the things that Israel had to experience on the way, all of the hardships that found them on the way. And he ends with and he emphasizes the fact that God saves them. It's interesting that Itro he's very, very moved by this. And the first thing he says is Baruch Hashem. A lot of us say Baruch Hashem many times a day. You're saying he meant it, perhaps. He actually (laughs) meant it, and he's actually one of the first. There's actually three non-Jews who say Baruch Hashem in the Torah. Those of us who are accustomed to saying Baruch Hashem, thank God, whenever someone says, how are you? So we say Baruch Hashem, really, Yitro is so sincere, and his relationship with God is at the forefront of this story, even more so than his relationship with Moshe. But it's because of what Moshe tells him and what Moshe chooses to emphasize. And Moshe doesn't just emphasize, Oi. We've had such a horrible time in the desert and the plagues and Egypt and everything. He emphasizes that God saved him.
0: So why do you think this is important enough that the Torah places this even before the revelation at Sinai? I know that even Ezra thinks it's out of order. He thinks that in fact this is the Torah going against the historical order, which makes the question even sharper. Why give us this now? Why talk about the outsider when we're about to enter into a covenant and focus on being insiders?
1: Right. So I think that, first of all, it's important for us to emphasize that Yitro, after this reunion, he brings sacrifices to God. And then he gives Moshe sage advice about how to organize the justice system and how to make a hierarchy and not to stand all day and have people coming to him day and night, right? Because it's difficult for Moshe, difficult for the people. And because Ito gives this sage advice, we would think that the advice comes, obviously, after the revelation at Sinai and after the commandments are given. But the fact that it comes earlier is what makes Ibn Ezra say wait a minute, this is actually out of order. And the reason I think it's out of order is because the thing that happens immediately before this reunion with Moshe's father-in-law is the story of Amalek, that Amalek comes out of nowhere. The very last thing that happens in Chapter 17 and the last parasha, B'shalach, is that Amalek comes out of nowhere and attacks the Jewish people from behind the feeble, the elderly, the children, the pregnant women, in a very, very cowardly, terroristic manner way, and he is juxtaposed to Yitro as the outsider who's there to destroy, who's coming to destroy the Jewish people, as opposed to Yitro who's the outsider who's really coming to support the Jewish people.
0: So, just so we can follow along here, the Torah here, it's not just telling us about Moshe's family, even though we're very curious about that. Yitro is a symbol, as perhaps Amalek is the ultimate symbol of either a destructive or supportive and fruitful relationship the Jewish people can have with the non-Jew. So why juxtapose, and what do you think the Torah is trying to tell us about the relationship of the Jewish people and the non-Jewish world?
1: So I think the Torah is asking us to think about what is our relationship to outsiders. You know, in many religions, the outsider would never receive acclaim, and it would never be lifted up to a position of status, right? There's only one way, there's only one truth. The outsider is the infidel. The outsider is the one who, right, who doesn't belong, who doesn't believe, who's not right, he's not redeemable. And I think in our tradition, we see outsiders very, very differently. And What I want to think about is that I was trying to come up for myself with some kind of categorization to understand what are the different kinds of outsiders that the Torah presents to us. I came up with three different categories, right? Three different kinds of outsiders, three different ways that the Torah asks us to look at outsiders, people who are born outside the Jewish people, outside of Jewish traditions, and how are they different from each other, and what's our responsibility toward them?
0: Okay, so let's hear the three. I'm ready.
1: And the most important question is what drives each of these types of non-Jewish outsiders to do what they do? So the first category, I think, is what I would call the non-Jewish supporters, people who maintain their own identity as non-Jews, These are not converts. These are people who come from the outside, and the driving force for them is some kind of innate sense of morality. Uh, They're unaware of Jewish laws. Maybe they don't even know Jewish people at all. These are righteous Gentiles who, for example, in the Holocaust, risked their lives to help save Jews just because it was the right thing to do. The Torah calls this Yirat Elohim. The Torah, when it talks about righteous Gentiles, it calls them people who are God-fearing, but I think not in the sense of fire and brimstone God-fearing, but really more God-revering. They're revering the image of God within each person. Examples of this would be the midwives. So I know that Rashi says the midwives are Moshe's mother and sister, but Abarvanel and other commentators. And I think, according to the Peshat, that the midwives themselves in Egypt are Egyptians. And that the Torah is coming to say to us that even—this is my favorite reading—because even in the worst of cultures, in the worst of times, there will always be very specific individuals who are willing to stand up against a totalitarian structure and to save people because they're people, because they're human beings.
0: So they have an inherent goodness, which you would argue the Torah believes is open and available to all human beings. Absolutely. And the fact that our Torah begins with the creation story, right? Jews don't come into the story till Avram much later. Our Torah, I think, is special as a book that is clearly not only concerned with the fate and destiny of the Jewish people, but is concerned with all of humanity. So this, I think, fits in very well with that, that being Egyptian doesn't mean you're bad.
1: Right. Perfect example is the daughter of Pharaoh. She's the one who hears a baby cry. And she's risking her life. You know, she could lose her life if she brings this baby into the palace. And as soon as Pharaoh, her father, knows what she's done, he could completely, he could, you know, off with her head. But she does that anyway. There's plenty of other people in the Torah, I won't go into other details, but there are many other characters in the Torah who come from this same kind of Yirat Elohim. They're not Jewish. They're not converts. Our commentators often want to turn them into converts. Like the sailors in the Jonah story, and even Yitro himself. But I'm going to take the shot avenue. Well, there's a certain
0: power, right? Yitro's whole power, I think, is the fact that he doesn't convert. At the end of the story, he goes home. That's right. Which I think fits in nicely with what you're saying. So, one category clearly is the person who fears God has an innate morality and is driven by that morality to do the right thing and to help the Jewish people, even in potential great costs to themselves.
1: That's right. And even if they don't know any Jews and if a Jew has never spoken to them in their lives. That's category number one.
0: Okay. Category
1: number two are non-Jews who are drawn to Jewish values because they have interacted with somebody who's Jewish. Many of them may become converts or they might remain righteous Gentiles. But an example is Yitro who, because of Moshe, and because of what Moshe tells him, he basically turns away from his spiritual practices, whatever they were, and to worship God and to offer sacrifices to God. Tzipora, Moshe's wife, is another example of that. Someone who, threw Moshe, and knowing what he did in order to save right, the daughters of Vito, in order to save her from the harassing shepherds, So I think that she's another example. Ruth is another example who follows Naomi.
0: So these are people who, through a relationship with a Jew or the Jewish people, are drawn to certain values, certain ways of life, certain commitments, and they want to be connected to that, whether they join the group fully or not, they still feel a connection to the mission or the way of life of the Jewish people.
1: Yes, and therefore that puts a tremendous responsibility on the Jews themselves, that the story that we tell to these non-Jews and the way that we live our lives and demonstrate what it is for us to be Jewish makes all the difference in the world to how these people are going to relate to the Jews and become supporters of the Jewish people.
0: Okay, so before we explore that very important point, we at least have to say a little bit about category number three, which we're not gonna be happy about, but uh, give us that category anyways.
1: So category number three are, I'm thinking about this is, these are non-Jews who are against the aims of the Jewish people. They seek to destroy them. They don't seek to build a better world together. They only seek to destroy. There's zero regard for the ethical ways of living. That are demanded in the Ten Commandments, and this is exactly where I think the story of Amalek, the character of Amalek, and the character of Yitro precede the Ten Commandments because really the Torah is asking us, okay, who's going to be on board? The Ten Commandments are an ethical way of life for all human beings. Of course, they were given to Moses at Sinai and explicitly for Jews. The non-Jews have the Noahide laws, many of which are right
0: they're reflected there are in the Ten, Commandments, in Ten sure. Commandments.
1: And for me, the war of existence that we're fighting now with Hamas belongs in this category. We're talking about Amalek in the Torah, we're talking about Haman, we're talking about Pharaoh. These are people who thought and went to great lengths to destroy the Jewish people.
0: And seemingly, in many instances, without any apparent benefit, right? In other words, it's not at all clear why Amalek wants to fight us in the desert. We're not trespassing. We're not using their resources. We're not part of some kingdom they want to control. It just as they show up. And uh what you're saying is that's precisely the point. They're not driven by a personal interest. They are driven simply, you're saying, by the hatred of the Jewish people.
1: That's right. And the desire to destroy, to destroy the values, the visions, the covenants, it's something that they can never destroy, but they think they can, and they aim to do that.
0: So. Let's go back to your other point because I feel like it's very suggestive here. What do you think the role is of the Jewish people vis-a-vis the non-Jewish world? You know, a lot of people like to emphasize that we're not a religion that seeks out converts. And therefore, I think that's led some to sort of believe that we're meant to sort of be in the silo and we do our thing as Jews and the rest of the world can do their thing and bygones be bygones. But you're suggesting something far more Challenging and important. If I understand you correctly, Yitro, we want the non Jewish world to be Yitro. That's right. And therefore, we want to engage them and ask them to help us build. So, could you say a little bit more about what you're imagining there?
1: I think our tradition has put tremendous emphasis on the responsibility that we have toward humanity, right? We were not chosen as a privilege, we were chosen. In order to give us responsibility. And the way I see it is that really we have that responsibility, the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we embrace, right, just the Ten Commandments. If we just started the Ten Commandments, I always say, halavai, I wish that everybody would just keep, you know, just the Ten Commandments, of what this world would look like. The Ten Commandments are really about, before we go into Jewish law, the Ten Commandments really are about building a society where we can trust each other, where we can live together, right, not to murder not to commit adultery or any kind of violent sexual abusive attacks, not to steal. Rashi says not to steal. Well, we have a different mitzvah in the Torah, not to steal. And so therefore, what is this mitzvah in the Ten Commandments, not to steal? It's actually not to kidnap people. It's not to steal human beings. So not to be violent, not to commit sexual atrocities and not to steal. Let's say we just start with those three, right? I think that that tells us really the kind of world that we could have if people only were able to get behind the Ten Commandments would be a whole different place.
0: What would you say, though, is our role in helping them get there? I think most people would agree that a world that adhered to a shared moral code of conduct with regard for human life. And of course, it's not lost on us who are listening to you how many of these core violations have been committed against us recently by an enemy that embraces those strategies. But what do you think, on a more positive level, how can the Jewish people get that message? We're not trying to convert people, but we are trying to influence. And what are the ways you imagine the Jewish people can have that influence on the world?
1: That's the question of the year. The first thing that comes to my mind is, that first of all, we have to live those values, right? We can talk as much as we want, but we have to live those values among ourselves. I think that when we, as a people, know how to treat each other with respect and treat each other with Yirat Elokim, with a sense of deep morality and deep sensitivity and concern, I think that that's the beginning of how to do that, which raises the question, what happens when we have critique of each other? What happens when we want to criticize each other? And that's something that we learned from Yitro in this week's Torah portion. In the Torah portion, when Yitro says to Moshe, you're not doing it right, you're going to just completely burn out, and the people who are standing in line all day are not going to want to come to you anymore because you're just not available enough for them, and therefore you have to make judges and people who are right in a hierarchy, judges of tens of hundreds of thousands, you have to really create a hierarchy which is going to be good for everyone. So I think that the criticism, that when we have criticism, of ourselves or of someone else, we have to be able to do it in a way we have to really check ourselves and check our motive to ask ourselves really, are we doing it out of love? Are we doing it out of respect and respectful tone in a respectful way? And are we doing it in order to build something together?
0: Number one then, if I understand correctly, which I guess is sort of step one, we have to live this life ourselves. We have to be an example. We're not getting it right. We have no hope of helping others quote-unquote, get it right. And number two, you also added that we have to be careful how we talk about each other. That in many instances, our critique of one another within the Jewish people can undermine our ability to then influence the world in a positive way. Because, you know, the world often loves to quote Jews who say really bad things about Israel or the Jewish people, and they say, it's not anti-Semitism, because I'm Jewish. Of course that that's okay. And what you're suggesting is, whether it's a Jew or a non-Jew, if the criticism comes from a place of wanting to help and encourage and make better, that's one thing but you're also suggesting that the criticism sometimes can come from a place of really wanting to tear down and to undermine. And we have to check, well, I guess checking other people's motives is very challenging, but also checking our own. Are we criticizing because we want to improve things or are we criticizing because we're jealous, we're angry, we want to tear something down?
1: Yes. I think that's exactly where we have to begin. If I can finish with a story, I want to talk about someone who's really a source of inspiration for me since I was first introduced to her, not personally, but through the media. And that's a woman whose name is Iris Chaim, I-R-I-S-H-A-I-M, look her up. She's the mother of the hostage Yotam Chaim, the red-headed teenage hostage that was killed by accident by IDF soldiers. And after her son was killed, she did three things that were just unimaginable to most people. The first thing that she did is she heard when she was sitting Shiva, she heard from some of the soldiers how demoralizing and how upset and just destroyed they felt because of what they had done inadvertently, but because that they had killed her son. And she publicly put out a call, and you can listen to it on the internet. She publicly called for the soldiers to come to her home. She made a one and a half minute recording on WhatsApp, and she said, please come to my home so I can hug you. And so I can tell you how much I love you and that I and my husband and our two other children were not resentful that by killing the young men, our son, who you IDF soldiers thought were terrorists, you were doing what you thought would preserve lives because you were sure that they were terrorists. So keep doing everything that you're doing to preserve your own lives and the lives of your comrades.
0: So where do you think this comes from for her, this ability to trust that the soldiers and the Jewish people are with her and are not the cause of her grief and her horrible pain.
1: I wish I knew. I wish I could answer that question. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I do also. I don't know. I think what you're describing really is a, a faith, a belief in the task of the Jewish people. And I think that that belief is challenged all the time on two levels. First, like you said, the internal critique, we can't succeed. We're not up to that. We're not good enough. We're not the ones who are going to make the world better. The world is huge and we're small and we're flawed. And I think the other one, of course, is how could we possibly defeat or transform the incredible evil that's around us? It's going to wash over us. How could we possibly believe that we could defeat Amalek when Amalek seems so persistent and committed and funded and huge, so I'm just sort of wondering for yourself, what gives you strength to believe in this vision of the world of Moshe's and Yitros when we feel like we're in a world of the Jews and Amalek? Well, How's that for a simple yeah, question <laughs> to drop in your lap thoroughly?
1: Definitely. Well, I think I, I'm an optimistic person by nature, and therefore, when I want to believe something, I will believe it. I think it starts from an inner will to believe that we can do this. First of all, I believe that God is good, that God created a world where good is possible. I believe that we've moved in our history through so many horrific and terrible times and come through to develop something great because of it, even though we've lost Jewish lives and human lives. I just, I really believe in the potential of good in the world. And I also believe in the depth of the Torah. I mean, as a Torah teacher, I think the Torah is just crying out to us and saying, You can do this. This is your mandate. You have to do this. And you owe this to the world. You weren't chosen, like I said, for any privilege. You were chosen for this responsibility.
0: So, as much as we might wonder, why Amalek? Why do we have to face these things? What I hear you saying is, in a way, it's a faith born of no choice, in the sense that either we're gonna believe that the Jewish people have a role to play and that humanity itself can build something positive and good in this world, or we're just gonna be giving in to Amalek, we're gonna be giving in to destruction, and there's no way forward from that. Once you say destruction has won, then all there is left to do is be bitter and angry and sad, and I hear you saying that we are challenged, we are challenged to choose life. In a sense, what you're saying is a life that where there is possibility of a better world, a healthier world, a happier world, and one which the Jewish people can play a very important role.
1: Yes. I want to say two more things about Iris Chaim, which exactly demonstrate what we're talking about now. The second thing is that she is living a life of Baruch Hashem. She's not a religious person the way that I understand in terms of being Jewishly observant in that sense. She lives a life of Baruch Hashem. She lives a life of counting her blessings because she made that decision. When her son was killed, she made a decision between being bitter and living a life of bitterness. And she stood up and said, no, I refuse to do that. She and her whole family, she said, I'm going to live a life without resentment, without anger, because that only destroys us right from the inside. So she, and also she decided to let go of her stereotyped preconceived notions about people who are different from her politically and religiously, and to engage with them in direct and respectful dialogue to bring healing to our people. What she did was really phenomenal because she said, I was influenced by the media, by the media in Israel who was bashing Right. Ourselves and bashing each other. She said, I was afraid I was going to have to be some, a, I don't know, ultra orthodox religious person who could never turn on my radio on Shabbat and had to wear a long skirt down to the floor. She said, I admit that. I admit that that's what the media caused me to believe. But then she basically like woke herself up to a different reality. And therefore the third thing she asked is she said, if I'm going to change this about myself, my preconceived notions, I'm asking the media to think very carefully, people who manage the media to think very, very carefully about what it is that you're putting out in the world. You can critique and you could, you know, criticize, but let's do it in a way which minimizes our divisiveness and maximizes the things that unite us. Which, unfortunately, right now is this war. But we have to continue even during and beyond the war to uh, to do that. It's a, it's a it's a huge responsibility that we have.
0: And I think my own takeaway from what you're saying is that. Usually, we kind of wait for the feeling and then act on it, right? I I wait to feel God's presence, and then I have emunah. And what you're saying is it's really the reverse. She made a choice. We have to make a choice to seek it out, to look for it, to hold on to it, even when we're not feeling it, even in moments of tremendous pain, right? That the Baruch Hashem comes even when you're sad and lonely and you feel a lot of despair, and you still choose the Baruch Hashem. I think that that challenge that you're putting out there is extraordinarily difficult. Uh, but on the other hand, I feel in a certain way, it's something that the Jewish people have been very good at for at least more than 2,000 years, the ability to believe in our purpose, our mission, our holiness, our connectedness in the face of an historical reality that wouldn't have supported that at all. And sometimes when I feel like, how can I keep going? Everything is so bad. And I just remind myself, you know, Rashi kept going, right? The Jews of Ashkenaz kept going after the Crusades and the Jews of Spain after they were kicked out. Like All these difficult things when the Jewish people were trapped between the anvil and the hammer of the Muslim and Christian world. And we're only here now as Jews because those people still trusted and believed that something positive was gonna emerge. So I sometimes think of them and remind myself that I have to choose it like Iris Chaim did, to actively choose it in the face of so much pressure.
1: Yes, if we have tshuva to do, if we have to change something about ourselves, then we need to do that. And if we don't have something to change, because we all love to say, no, no, I'm, I'm just fine, then we need to do more of the good things that we're doing in order to bring about unity and to uh, speak well of the Jewish people when we're speaking to the non-Jews, when we're speaking to the Gentiles, when we're writing, posting things and writing and speaking about other people. We have to be very, very careful, just like we wouldn't want to criticize our own family in front of other people. There are certain things we can keep to ourselves and figure out our own ways to work toward peace within ourselves. We don't have to publicize everything to the outside world.
0: Okay, everybody. Tovelea's message is you gotta choose something positive, choose to improve yourself, choose to be kind to the Jewish people, choose to be kind to the rest of the world, and not give in to the despair that Amalek brings, that there is a lot of destruction we're facing right now, but there is still tremendous potential to build and create and do something better. So thank you very much, Tovaley. I really thank appreciate you, it. Thank you. I hope all of you, I know I gained a lot. I hope all of you uh, did as well. And again, I hope that by the time you're listening to this, we both hope that you won't need it, that everything will look wonderful and you'll look back and say, oh my gosh, Tovaleya knew. She knew what was coming for us. So if that's the case, wonderful. If not, then God willing, we'll will keep hoping and praying for something better in our future. Until that time, have a Shabbat Shalom. And we look forward to sharing more Torah with you next week.
1: Shabbat Shalom.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.